0: Welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Well, on the line with me now is Blaine Hadfield of uh, Arrowhead Models up in Shiver Territory, Wyoming. <laughs> so welcome, welcome again. Blaine and I have actually talked once before in the, in the past on a podcast, but this is under his new uh, new venture. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've got to ask, why Wyoming? Where'd
1: that come from? Oh, um, Wyoming is our kind of state, just in terms of our personalities alone. It's uh, the, the least populated of all states in the nation. It's, you know, we moved to an area, the specific town we moved to is called Sheridan. It's right right on the Montana-Wyoming border. Um, you, you literally could, could walk there across the border from where we're <laughs> okay. at, and uh, about dead center of the state. So um, it's, a, it's a, a ranching community. It's a small town, about 17,000 people live here, which makes it the biggest thing in two hours any direction. And uh, we're small-town people, and and Utah is a fine place to live. Utah actually has a booming economy, probably one of the strongest economies in the country. But um, it's also growing rapidly. It's the fastest-growing state. And most of that growth is centered in an area called the Wasatch Front, which is um, a relatively, you know, in terms of geography, a relatively small portion of the state salt lake and utah counties um the population there is is expected to double it's just a lot of growth and and you know where that might work for a lot of people that's not not really my cup of tea or my wife's cup of tea um okay so uh, yeah we found a place that has the character and and um feel that we were looking for here in sheridan we absolutely love it out here. Um Wyoming is also a, a relatively business-friendly state. So that served our interests given that we were, you know, launching Arrowhead models. Okay. Um we we couldn't be happier. Like we've we found the place where, you know, unless something you know drastically bad happens where, you know, hopefully we'll die. Like this is we're right at home here.
0: Okay. Well, and when I was just chit-chatting with my wife over dinner, and she said, "Oh, where is he?" and I say, "He's in Wyoming," and she just looked over at me. Oh, you're kind of state. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> yes, it yes, it would be the upper, upper Midwest, the uh, you know the eastern side of the mountains going up through there. And I'm a winter person, and she's more of a beach person, so that would oh, never yeah. happen. <laughs> never happen.
1: Yeah, Sheridan's cold. You know, it's been a relatively mild winter this, this season. The previous season, uh, last year, we uh, we had 155 inches of snowfall on our roof here in town. And then, <laughs> um, it, yeah, if you don't know, Sheridan is right at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains. And there 12 feet of snow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's I'm sure there are other places in the country that get more, but it was uh pretty severe from what we're used to. Okay. But we love it. You know,
0: we absolutely love it. So how long ago did Arrowhead models spring forward? When'd you kick this? Off? Um, I,
1: I count the business start date. Um, not when the business was an organized entity with the state but when we Mm -hmm. launched product okay and we launched our first product the ho scale committee design hopper in on august 3rd of 2018 so about mm, what seven eight nine months ago something like that i believe that we made our first announcements um about our business in june about a month and a half prior, two months prior. Um, okay. I don't remember the exact date, but, um, you know, people were aware of us then. So
0: Okay. All right. And the last time you and I had a discussion on the podcast, you know, you were with Xactra. And mm-hmm. so somewhere along the line, do you recall the motivation to begin the business entity of erahead models. Do you remember what your motivation was?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I had um, there were a couple of motivating factors. Um, you know, and I, I'm happy to discuss any of them, but foremost on the list is I just I didn't feel like I was getting the support that, that I needed at ExactRail to continue to innovate and build great product. Okay. And, um, you know, I put a lot of myself into this business, you know, whether I'm the business owner or not, I'm, I'm a passionate enthusiast. And although I'm not perfect, um, I, I try really hard to get it right. And I, I just was in a place where I didn't feel like ExactRail was behind me on that effort. And so, okay. um, so the decision was made to split. And um, I left ExactRail and got employment uh, with a company in the uh, oil and gas industry as an uh, engineering manager for them, and uh, used that to bridge until we launched uh, Arrowhead, the business. And currently I'm full time in Arrowhead.
0: Okay. So if I look at the first hoppers, now you've got wheel sets, you've got that minor handbrake Mm -hmm. and i look at the detail that's there Uh uh-huh was that one of the original goals was to achieve that level of fidelity to the prototype or did it kind of evolve or was that part of your dream that was motivating you
1: well it wasn't part of my dream um you know Obviously, when a person chooses to go a different direction, there's there are reasons for that. But to ExactRails credit, they never they never controlled or, or attempted to control process in such a way that would have prohibited me from putting that kind of detail into those cars um, that I developed with them. And, you know, my ability to execute at that level was was probably more a function of of me becoming more mature as as a a designer and a product developer in the model train space than anything else but but you're right the car the committee design hopper which just by way of note for your listeners is an open hopper that goes well beyond anything that i'm aware of in terms of of a freight car in terms of its, its consideration of nuanced details and its complexity as a project. For your listeners who may not be aware, uh, we, we released and announced what we call the committee design hopper. Now, the reason it's called the committee design hopper is because the design of that car was a committee effort between the Pennsylvania Railways, the uh, Norfolk and Western, and the Chesapeake and Ohio The thought leader um, in that effort was the Norfolk Western Railroad. So up up into the 1950s, relative to other railroads, the Norfolk and Western was a highly standardized railroad. They really recognized and appreciated the um, benefits of of standardization. And the... um, the president of the railroad, and I'm straining to remember his name, I believe it was Ralph W. Smith, but but I, I suppose I could have that wrong too. He sought to reap the benefits of standardization by by not just employing um, those principles in his own railroad, but reaching out to others. And uh, he found agreement with the, the Pennsylvania Railroad and Chesapeake and Ohio And those three railroads were among the largest coal carrying railroads at that time, which is really a significant statement given, you know, in the 1950s, just the number of railroads was so much greater than, than the number of railroads today. And so collectively they developed a car that they felt like, um, you know, would be ideal. And when the, uh, project um, was fully realized, the Pennsylvania Railroad bought and built it in quantity. They um, they had 16,130 committee design cars, which makes it the largest uh, single car class of any railroad of any post-war car um, ever. Like it's a massive massive fleet of cars
0: oh, and
1: uh, yeah and that really characterized coal movement in, you know this car you know on the east from you know that point for the next 30 years in fact conrail um abandoned its attempts to standardize around 100 ton cars in the 70s when 100 ton cars were were common um just due to the 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 sheer number of the committee design cars. Um, what were they, 50 so ton or 70 ton rated? 70 ton cars. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Norfolk and Western uh, chose not to develop the car further. They felt like the car was too big for its lading. Like physically, the car was too big. They felt like, um, and they used their H10 class car as an example that a smaller car could carry the same, the same tonnage um, and be less dangerous to the railroad. And um, so rather than pursuing the committee design car further, they built one car, a prototype, and they used the committee design to springboard into its massive H11 class series. So um, that too is one of the largest car classes in post-war railroading. Um, the Norfolk and Western had just, I, I am working from just memory and it's a number that I haven't looked at in some months, but it's, you know, something in the magnitude of like 12 to 15,000 H11 cars. So really a big fleet of cars there too. So this is a very important car. Yeah.
0: Well, and having, having grown up in Huntington, West Virginia on the C&O, You know, I've been stuck in traffic more than a few times behind, you know, committee coal cars lumbering across Fifth Avenue and Third Avenue going to the river docks. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. First hand experience with massive fleets and slow moving GP9s. Oh,
1: yeah, I can imagine. Um, The Chesapeake and Ohio um, bought or built uh, at their at their shops, uh, their holiday spurt. No, excuse me. Rachel, I got that wrong. Yes, thank you. Shops. Um, they built 500 of the committee design cars. But what's interesting about them is, like the Norfolk and Western, um, they didn't they didn't pursue the committee design car after the prototype. They waited a number of years. Okay. They felt like um, by the time the committee effort had come to a, clo- a close, they felt like the market had moved out ahead of them to a point that they were now interested in 85 ton conveyances. Okay. And so for a period of about five years, they, they, um, you know, they built thousands of 85 ton conveyances and then they came back and built 500 committee design cars. And uh, it's just an interesting, an interesting anachronism, I think from, from what you would expect. But, you know, a 500 car lot is a sizable lot. I mean, the, CN, the CNO had a lot of coal cars, but yes, 500 cars is still a reasonable number.
0: Ah, oh, yeah. Race, the Raceland facility, which is down on the perimeter of Ashland, Kentucky, is mm-hmm. a, uh, at that time anyway, it was a huge facility. Yeah, and that's where the cars were built. Locomotive work in Huntington, but down in Raceland was where the cars were were done. Now, one of the things that I like about your website, besides okay. obviously product information on the, the cars, the photos, that really highlight the detail, is just what you've been talking about, where you list the narrative of how the real-world prototype evolved. You give us a history of the car. I, I think that is just excellent to have that information on your website because I'm always curious as, well, wonder how many there were of this. How did this car come about? And as you just said, you've detailed it and documented it on the website. I like that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do. Uh, Whatever your next product is, do the same thing. I love that kind (laughs) of information. I will. So we've got right now, you've got what? Pennsylvania and nnwc
1: No. So uh, we offered the car in three paint schemes Mm -hmm. um, to launch our business. The first was the Pennsylvania Naturally. But then we also um, uh, offer the car in Rio Grande and Southern paint schemes, both of which were all the owners of the committee design car. In fact, in an article in the Prospector, which is the Rio Grande Historical Society's um, publication, I wrote an article about the committee design car where I argued that it's the most important hopper on the Rio Grande, which to some uh, Rio Grande enthusiasts, they might be uh, surprised by that. But in the 1950s or up to the 1950s, the the primary conveyance for coal on the on the Grand was drop-bottom guns. and it was sometime in the late 40s and in the 50s that that they started to look for um, open hoppers or look towards open hoppers as being sort of the next generation um, for the railroad, and uh, um, they had three lots of. Of of open hoppers that that they bought from other manufacturers, one from Bethlehem and an ACF design, and um, but it was when they they bought their lot of committee cars, they bought two hundred in nineteen sixty um, that they settled on the committee design as being the de facto oh. design. That that dog bark you just heard was my my uh, <laughs> that's my that's dog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's a beautiful animal and I love him.
0: Um he's not the first but, dog that's been on the show though. <laughs> but that's uh,
1: okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> you have a problem.
1: <laughs> so um yeah, so uh they bought 21960 and um after having bought cars of that design the Rio Grande never looked back. The next 600 Uh, open coal hoppers they bought were of the committee design. And then beyond that, um, their massive steel fleet of 3483 hoppers, which is a car you may be familiar with. That's a car that I did while at exact rail. Um, that is a hundred ton derivation of the committee design. Okay. So it's, 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 a family car, if you will. And, uh, um, you know, the Rio Grande never looked back, both in terms of that design profile, but also in terms of um, its builder, Bethlehem. Every new HTAAR-class car that the Rio Grande acquired from 1960 was was built by Bethlehem. So a uh, very, very, very important car for, for Rio Grande modelers as well. And the reason... Um, That I chose those three railroads. So the Southern had 70 cars that they acquired from the Norfolk Southern. Okay. Um, When the Southern acquired the Norfolk Southern in 1974, um, the Norfolk Southern cars, the original Norfolk Southern cars were delivered in that really handsome gray scheme with the black in red S logo. Um, They had 70 cars. I got them in 1966 uh, the Southern repainted them into their really sharp clader, um lettering scheme, which um, is, it's just, in my opinion, just a great looking car. Not to mention the fact that the Southern Railway had a massive, massive fleet of steel three-bay hoppers of, of various designs. And that uh, that market's largely been neglected. Um, So I felt like that was really, really a great offering for for Southern modelers. And then, um, you know, we we chose those particular railroads because, you know, between the Southern, between the Pennsylvania and between the Rio Grande, geographically speaking, you've got the U.S. covered. So I wanted to come forward with, you know, if a person had an interest in buying an Arrowhead model, and they modeled anytime time post 1960. There's reasonable justification to do it anywhere okay. in the U.S. So.
0: Now, yeah. just curious, the one you offer a, a an amazing number of road numbers than all these models. Uh, yeah, and on the the southern one, that's the basic design done later on by, what, Bethlehem or one of the other people?
1: Yeah, so um, when Pennsylvania started building the cars, Mm -hmm. uh, the first lots they built um, in their Holidaysburg shops, but they were looking to add um, such such a massive quantity of cars that that they farmed that design out to builders and okay. ACF built quite a number of them. Bethlehem built quite a number of them. Pullman standard, which is actually the precise model that we did built a number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, companies that built that car like Bethlehem, of course made that same design available to customers like Norfolk Southern and Rio Grande. and Okay. and uh, and others. So um, in addition to the paint schemes that we did, other railroads that own the committee design car are uh, Western Maryland. um, Of course, Chesapeake and Ohio, we've mentioned that Milwaukee road, uh, Norfolk Southern. And then some of those fell into secondhand ownership. So
0: okay. Well, and the other thing I noticed when I had reviewed the, the website was yes, yeah, the Pennsylvania, for instance, because of being a smaller car, were friction bearing, because that's when they were made. When, and mm-hmm. then the Southerns have uh, you know roller bearings on. Looks it. like you know Timken or somebody like that. Good looking uh, coal loads. Is that a part of
1: the uh, car kit or the car? It, it is yes, it absolutely wow. is. Yeah, wow. yeah. So. We actually put, we put probably more time in developing coal loads than I think most, most customers would suspect. Really? Because, tell me about that. Well, you know, it's an interesting process. Um, coal loads um, aren't symmetric about any access, particularly loads in older cars like these. Um, you know, in modern day, you know, but even in a modern day flood loader, you don't get um, symmetry, you know, across the length of the car. Um, and in a design environment, historically speaking, engineers have had the inclination to to design with symmetry. So if if it's a flood load, right, the the load is precisely center of the car. Um. The slough on the load is, you know, exactly, you know, the same degree all the way around. Um, When heap loads like this, you know, same thing. They're, you know, heaped on some, you know, mathematical ratio and mirrored and and you get a load, but but that's not what loads look like. And so neither are our loads. And, um, you know, you just... There are more work than one would think because, because um, you know, we try to create a load, particularly with this car, because it's a big car, we want a load that doesn't fill the car up, right? And right. so that lo- load has to be relatively precise because, you know, you're fitting that that body piece, you know, into and around – you know, the slope sheets of the car, the in sheets of the car, and then then the bracing that's inside of the car, and then you're making it so it's not, you know, symmetric. And there were a number of iterations that we passed through until we got something that we liked, you know, exactly as it was. Um, and uh, I just think that there's probably more effort there than what a person would be inclined to think. But you know, it's, it's in my opinion, an imp- a really important part of the car. I mean, it's got to be right. Well, it,
0: I tell you what, they do look good. Well, thank you. Looking at the B end, all the brake piping, good heavens, I can imagine facing, putting that onto a kit, you know, and empathizing with your assembly people who have got to – Put all of that detail on there. That is amazing. brake detail. Thank you. And I'm sure that's what you wanted to achieve. Well, you've executed it well.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate the compliments. It is what we wanted to achieve. The uh, Pennsylvania car has 145 parts per car.
0: Holy
1: cow. The Rio Grande car has 142 parts per car. And because the Rio Grande car is of a Bethlehem design and the Pennsylvania car is of a Pullman design, in terms of the plastic part count, there is almost zero shared tooling between the two cars. Wow. So in effect, what we've done is we've created a model, the committee design car, that has 287 parts. Now not, there's no car that has 287 parts, but this, the breadth and scope of the project is that deep. Um, so between the Pennsylvania version and the Rio Grande version, nothing is the same. And the Southern version, the, uh, you know, the Southern is is an important car and a great car, and I don't mean to admit that, but the brake appliance, um, configuration in, in the body, a Bethlehem body, makes a southern car an amalgamation of the Pennsylvania and the Rio Grande cars.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and we did some different things on that. Um, so, for example, the uh, 1955 Apex handbrake on the Rio Grande car mm-hmm. um, consists of four pieces um there's you know so just on that one part you know there's the brake wheel which is a true 1955 Ajax uh, um, handbrake it has you know the dish of the handbrake and yes its design is is relatively you know its own but then you've got the handbrake housing and then you've got a separate gear and chain on the interior which is a separate part and and Then you have the second release lever. Um, so, you know, on the minor um, 1942 era uh, handbrake. Um, it, so, th- there is a, a word of clarification: um, the handbrake body on the the Pennsylvania and the Southern car. Well, the handbrake itself is is a minor 1942 era brake, which. Means the handbrake housing was a 1942 era design. It does not mean that that was the production year. Once that design was established, uh, Minor used that design up until 1966, when there was just a minor, a minor change um, that I, I don't even think most people could point to and say how they're different. And then they used that into the 70s. So. When I use that term, I, I want to be careful. I don't want the listeners to think that it's a um, it's a production year because because that part is you know would be good for anybody that's modeling anything really thereafter. Truth be told, but um, in 1942, Minor used a different style of brake wheel, and in the 1950s, I believe it was 1955, if memory serves. Um, the industry set out to standardize on a brake wheel. And I don't know that they truly ever obtained standardization, but they definitely got pretty close. most you know brake wheels you know after nineteen fifty five more or less looked the same, and that was also true for for minor. But the minor brake wheel is a different slightly different design than the brake wheel on the apex or excuse me, the Ajax handbrake. And in our model, um, the brake wheel is a precise match for the 1955 era brake wheel that Miner was using. So, I mean, we're talking about detail iterations and relatively complex detail iterations at that level. You know, the Pennsylvania built these cars in 1958, you know, got a 1942 era brake, handbrake, Miner with a 1955 era handbrake wheel, you know, both of those are accurately matched on our car along with the Keystone door locks. Yeah. Um so we're we're drilling down to that level and you know, one of the things that we also did is on the the air reservoir or the ABD valve, those are multi-piece parts too. Just, you know, most manufacturers have that whole brake appliance set is a single part, but our air reservoir alone is is three parts. And it's it's five parts if you want to count some of the mounting details and and even more if you want to count the plumbing, because that's all wire. It's not plastic. But you know, the air the the air reservoir, there well, there are constraints in the injection molding process such that you can't get accurate part morphology um unless you break things down into smaller parts. That's, that's the impetus behind this effort. It's not that we're trying to run up part count because that's an expense against our business. That's not something that we're particularly interested in. But, um, but we want the parts that we do model to be accurate. And given the way um, a mold will pull and release apart yes. it constrains what you can do and you can't get an accurate air reservoir uh, uh, you know in one piece you can't do it for, for you know particularly for these, these older style air reservoirs like like those that you know you see on the committee design car where they have a bolted flange you can't get the bolt detail and we wanted the bolt detail on the on the flange right at the center of the air reservoir so we created a three piece air reservoir that allows us to get that flange detail. So considerations like that, that I think really, really set the committee design car apart.
0: All right. Let me, uh, let me pose a question. When I look at your website, which for the listeners is arrowhead models, all one string of letters.com. And I'm looking at the, the cars, the cars detail, just what you've said, is it an Ajax handbrake? Uh, is it minor wine uh, outlets or Keystone? Now, we uh-huh. have the price per car, and the photo is showing me trucks and couplers. So that's a complete RTR car?
1: Correct. Okay. Well, well, um, you can buy the car complete an RTR. We also offer the car in an undecorated kit in each of the configurations for which we offer the painted models.
0: Okay. Now, and let me just ask a silly question. Okay. How much of a kit is it? Is it everything's a separate part, or is it a basic body that you have the details? Just a curiosity question.
1: Yeah, it's one hell of a kit. Yeah. Can I say that? (laughs) I bet it is. It is. No. um, So the kit is uh, nothing is assembled, nothing is painted. So if you're okay. buying the, the Pennsylvania version of the car,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know it would be a kit with 145 parts in it. That's okay. um, All right. the uh, the the kit um, goes together by exactly the same process that the painted models go together. So in other words, if anyone ever wanted to question the value of a model put together a kit and recognize that that our models are built in exactly the same way that you would build one of our kits there is somebody who sits down and with a pair of tweezers and some glue puts the kit together and then they paint it and they pad print it or they they paint and pad print it you know yeah. You know as the cars become complex you might have painting and pad printing steps mid assembly um but but just to just to paint the picture generally like like there's no difference there's no space between what you would need to do to put together one of these kits and what a a, a person in a factory is doing to put together one of these kits
0: okay
1: pretty gotcha. yeah
0: It's an accurate answer.
1: Yeah. So I just, I just, um, uh, we have instructions for the kits. And I believe our instructions are 40 pages long. So you ask about how much of a kit is it? It's 145 parts and a 40 page book. (laughs) Okay. Pretty involved. Um,
0: Now I see that you're doing wheel sets too and it looks like yes. you've actually already sold out your your current production run of wheel sets yes. uh, wow. what, what are you doing differently on your wheel sets from one of the longer term suppliers be it like Walthers or
1: Intermountain or so forth I
0: mean it's good looking uh, wheel natural set
1: there tell me about it Well, everything is different. Everything. So I'm I'm going to trust that your listeners are are familiar with uh, the factory that closed in China recently. That factory uh, served uh, something in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 U.S.-based model train manufacturers. Okay. And – and made the wheel sets for those manufacturers okay. and that constitutes effectively the entire market of aftermarket wheel sets not everybody everybody but pretty close and in terms of volume really pretty close to everybody okay and the the wheel sets between manufacturers so the inner mountain wheel sets that you buy and the exact rail wheel sets that you would have bought um, were made by the same person to exactly the same spec using exactly the same tolerances. So okay. th- they just would make wheel sets, and and um, and people would issue purchase orders for those wheel sets and then package them and, and brand them accordingly. And but but there's effectively no difference. Um, between those wheel sets you know it's an interesting thing wheel sets are you know apart from couplers the most ubiquitous part in model railroading in railroading like yeah there, there can be minor differences between wheel sets just like there can be in couplers but not really i mean even less so than in couplers other than diameter and yet it's a part where we've just grown accustomed to accepting wheel sets that uh, that aren't faithful, you know, to the shape, to the profile, to the dimensions of a prototype wheel set. They're just not. Okay. And so, when I was at Exact Rail, as some of your listeners know, we offered a product called the world's greatest wheel set or the world's finest wheel set, I believe. That was a project that I worked really, really hard on. Um, that was a, a pretty important project to me. And in that project, we tried to sort of cover the distance. Uh, the wheel sets, uh, a, a prototype wheel set has. Well, it's got a unique dish, you know, a, a concave surface to the to the outside wheel face, but it's also got. Um, you know, a unique profile to the inside of the wheel. Um, and then axles are, are con- you know, have a dish to them. Um, and none of that is captured on a prototype wheel set. Well, uh, about five years ago, um, Ex- Xacterel made the decision to stop manufacturing those wheel sets. And um, when I started Arrowhead, and then when that factory closed, I saw an opportunity in the market to 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 launch wheel sets again and uh that's what we did and and with some improvements i would say that the uh you know the arrowhead wheel set goes beyond what what we did previously um this time around perhaps just you know Having done the project, you know, once before, and, and then come back to it, and having been able to apply some of the lessons that that were learned, um, the flange and the way the wheel set assembles is just so much cleaner and so much tighter. Um, so there's there's aesthetic fidelity, which is an improvement with these wheel sets. Um, there's also um, a material improvement: the wheel sets are cut from from nickel silver. Uh, as a material, nickel silver is a lot harder than the steels that um, that you know other that are spec'd with other manufacturers. Um, it's non magnetic. A lot of your your wheel sets are magnetic, so you know, there's the opportunity for, for performance to be inhibited. Should that wheel set cross over a magnetic field of some kind? uh, Nickel silver is non-magnetic. It's a lot harder. Um, We like it in addition to those properties um, because it's um, a much better um, electrical conductor. So if you want to use a wheel set for resistance or if you're using a wheel set to, you know, with an electrical pickup of any kind, it's going to serve you a lot better. And then finally, the the finished surface of nickel silver is a very, very close match to the finished surface of a new wheel set. So if you weather the outside face of your wheel without paint or plating, um, you can get that really nice, shiny mirrored surface on the on the uh, wheel tread,
0: which oh, I think okay. is a really,
1: really attractive feature. Yeah. Um, and then one final benefit to add to the list is we machine these wheel facets at incredibly tight tolerances. We use state of the art CNC Swiss lays. We hold really, really, really tight tolerances, um, tolerances that go far be- beyond um, what aftermarket wheel sets um um were known to be you know held to which means the wheel set is rounder it's truer right i mean anytime you're cutting something on a lathe or any type of cutting or machining equipment um the tolerance of the equipment is is you know there's there's a, a tolerance range within which that equipment will cut and, and anything that falls within that range is flagged as good without discretion. So, um, you know, wheel sets can be a little out of true. They may not be precisely, you know, round in some sense, like there's there's a lot of different ways in which that can affect the rolling quality of your wheel set. And it's in holding those high High tolerances, where there's actually a lot of cost because there's a lot of lathes that can cut a low tolerance. Right, as you work into extremely high precise settings, the kind of equipment that you use to execute at that level is is just you know more expensive to buy manufacturing time on, and and um, so. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the wheel sets um, offer both aesthetic and performance um, benefits across the board, like just soup to nuts. It's just a better wheel set. And I'm really happy that the industry has responded as strongly as they have um, because we sold out of our wheel sets in less than 10 hours to our dealers and then – um, they were sold out, um, I mean, just days after they were stocked and inventoried. Most of our deals were sold out and gone. So we've got more coming. It's not a reason to panic. In fact, they should be here in weeks, not months. Um, <laughs> okay. But, but uh, yeah, they were really well received.
0: Well, and you just touched on something because here in New Orleans – The general market, uh, there's only really two hobby shops that deal significantly with model railroading. And one of those is predominantly O scale and G scale. Oh, okay. So do you go through dealers?
1: Yes. Yes, we do. We sell, we sell direct from our website. And we have a growing dealer network. We um, we we consider our dealer network and those relationships to be very valuable to us. And I mentioned that we sold out to our dealers in you know less than about ten hours. Um, one of the ways that we operate as it is um, so to support our dealers. Um, before we make an, a, a public announcement, we will announce a product, an upcoming product to our dealer network and give them the opportunity to buy that, that product before it goes live on our website. So dealers have sort of a um, a first crack. And, um, you know, typically we bring in, you know, we try to structure our quantities so that um, we don't sell out to our dealer network, but we have sufficient quantity that they can get everything that they feel like they need and then we can get enough that we have enough left over um to have on our website for um you know some period thereafter we, we target you know about six months but any anytime that you're you're choosing quantities there is kind of a, a a bit of magic to it you know how you how you make that assessment okay um so the fact that we sold out to our dealers so quickly is really a a nice affirmation for us um that we need to up those quantities so so we have
0: <laughs> okay right. what can you tell me about the the future so we've got proper cars uh, mm-hmm. can you share what might be coming down the line on your next uh Product offering, car type. Let's say
1: so. Arrowhead has announced the ACF forty six hundred, which is um, a really important covered hopper that's been long absent from um, the the upper end of the market. Um, uh, Arrowhead. Uh, it, it's uncharacteristic for Arrowhead to to make an announcement. Um, um before we actually have product in hand, that's one of our operating paradigms. But given that this is a car that Athern is also doing and, and pursuing, um, when uh, we made the decision to pick that car up again and and offer it, we felt like um, it it deserves some, you know, you know, a comment from us. At this point, there was a lot of speculation on on the forums and social media that there might be another player in that that space. And, you know, in fact, there is. So we, we felt a need to step in and clarify that. But um, for your listeners, if they're not already aware, um, Arrowhead will be doing the ACF 4600 covered hopper. Um, and that will be available in the... Uh, uh, 2020 year Um, very important project for us. It's a project in which we're already well invested and well down the, the having, having finished, Um, you know, in terms of uh, um, you know, what that model is going to look like. If you're familiar with our committee design car, you're going to see a similar level of execution there. Um, In other words, um highly accurate you know parts um very deep consideration of of you know the nuances between different phases and types and, and and railroads um all of that will be taken into account on this model and that's a car that we're really looking forward to offering here we um you know so we don't have expectations run away from us? We do have a couple of uh, other announcements and releases that we'll be making um, in advance of releasing the ACF ACF forty forty six hundred. It's not the next car out the gate, but um, it is one that that we've sort of parted the curtain and let people made people aware that we're doing that car as well.
0: Well, that's interesting. And okay, twenty twenty. All I got to do is live long enough to. By
1: uh, Well, 2020 is not that far away. Well, 2020 you know. Well, it's less seven, than a year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not that far away. So, and and we're we're not just starting that project. We're we're well down the path of having that project wrapped up.
0: That's cool.
1: We're not ready to make an announcement yet. Okay. Um, I'm not able to share car, car type. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that it's coming. Um, it's in production right now as we speak. Um, okay. We're looking uh, to have an announcement probably late summer at this point. Um, maybe early fall. Um, we're still, you know, a few months out. So I don't want to. I don't want I, I to paint myself into a corner.
0: Oh no! You know, I and totally say, understand. But, You've answered the question. But,
1: Yeah, Yeah, you got
0: more products coming, newer.
1: We do, and I I, I can say that the next car, um, uh, I'm really excited about it. Like it's it's something else. There's a hundred and ninety nine parts per car. (laughs) I mean, it's so
0: sick. I
1: know. (laughs) Okay, I know there are. That's going to be amazing. There are people in China right now that hate <laughs> I'll bet <laughs> um but it it really it, it's going to be unlike anything people have ever seen. this is uh, it's an important car. it's a very prolific car. um I'm really excited for the announcement we're We're doing some things that that again have never been seen before in the industry and um and we look forward to making that announcement late late summer.
0: Okay. all right well that's only three, four months away.
1: Gives us something it, to it look is. forward to. It is. And and after that we've got uh we've got a couple of other projects that are done. Um so um done I'm sorry I shouldn't say done that you're past the design um, in, in,
0: phase
1: we're past, yeah we're past the design phase and engineering phase and all of that and um those are are moving into production as well so um it, it, late part of 2019 2020 um it's going to be a very very busy time for our HUD.
0: okay well let me ask you cuz i'm a manufacturing uh, god at heart when you concept a program when we go through the engineering and so forth. What mm-hmm. kind of lead time, tooling-wise, say your mold dies and other things like that? What's a typical uh, lead time of those items?
1: Well, that that's difficult for me to answer um, for reasons that I'll explain. I'm not dodging the question. I'll give okay. you I'll give you a full and complete answer okay Um, but i will say that arrowhead operates a little differently than pretty much every other manufacturer that i'm aware of in that um we differentiate ourselves insofar as we do all of the research design and engineering in-house and that's that's something that i do myself and um Again, as far as I know, there's there, there really there really aren't any other model train manufacturers that are that committed to to bringing those two roles together. But but for us, it's important because uh, um, you know by way of the research process, a person develops an eye for the prototype that cannot be equally understood through an. Appeal to photographs or manufacturing prints alone, and um, that you know, the design is is the kind of thing where a person is making um, literally thousands of decisions that will affect that product outcome in such a way that that's impossible to do that looking over someone's shoulder. Um, And so, by bringing those two um, domains that the industry um, characteristically has now separated, in that a model train company in, in normal practice will do the research component and then send that over to an engineer in China to do the design, we bring those together. And in that way, we're not, you know, the researcher researches in such a way that he doesn't lay pitfalls in the design path and you know um the researcher um, knows how to research and deliver a research package that that serves the design process well um and of course all of the nuances and all of the information that that is garnered in the research process isn't lost through you know a point, you know, in, in communication errors or communication gaps, you know, to the to the engineer. So our process is we do all of the design and engineering on our end, and then we send finished files um, to a partner in China that then then picks that up, cuts the molds, and moves forward. So first caveat is Our process looks very different than the process of people's behind you around us. So if you're trying to consider design leads, that's something to take into account. Um, Typically, you know, once we have finished design work and we send those files to start tooling, we're something in the neighborhood of seven to nine months before we have. Of products now, um, um, that could look a little different. Uh, the reason I, I I say that with just a moment of hesitancy is is like many, um, we were doing work through that manufacturer that closed its stores. Um, I mentioned that at some point earlier in this conversation.
0: Yeah,
1: a um, big manufacturer. Its name was AFA, Closed its stores in in China. China and uh, um, like many in our industry, we have found a new manufacturing partner and are moving forward with that partner. Um, you know, design leads and timelines look a little differently with this new partner. Um, so far we view all of that favorably. Um, they're a little faster. They're, they're, I think, more competent, more capable. Um, but um you know, we have yet to push a major project through, so that could affect those design leads in one way or another. I have to leave the door open on that, which is why I'm I, I, I'm I'm tending to be a little bit squishy in the delivery of our next car. Is you know, the next car is really challenging. Like it's really, really challenging if you're if you're if you're manufacturing that car and doing the assembly. Um, naturally, our disposition is we're not going to accept anything that does. not doesn't meet, you know, our quality expectations, and and doing that with a new partner is, you know, is is tough to make that, you know, formulaic, right? Predictable, you know, the timelines formulaic. So we'll see how it goes, and and when the when the car is right, when everything is is what it needs to be, then then we'll move towards an announcement. That's how we'll work on that.
0: Okay. Sounds like you have that whole process buttoned down very, very tightly. So there's not any wiggle room or, let me say, judgmental uh, necessity on their part uh, that could produce a variance that you never intended nor were aware of. So it sounds like you you have done it very well.
1: Yeah, we write the book. They print the book. But we write the book, every word of it. Having dealt with
0: suppliers in Asia, China, in molded parts, uh, extruded parts. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a a spec, be it material, process, whatever, that has wiggle room in it. Uh, You know, because Murphy's Law then just comes into play and it's uh, Worst possible situation at the wrong time. So I'm I'm very impressed as a manufacturing guy what how you've approached that. Excellent.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you.
0: Not a problem. And you and you do it in the environment of uh, Wyoming, where your <laughs> blood where your blood slows down just walking out to get the newspaper.
1: Yeah, it it can get cold i mean it again i'm not making claims that it's the coldest place in america i'm gonna say it gets cold here and and there are people in your audience that are like oh you have no idea but um you know it's not uncommon yeah this this winter was was pretty mild but um yeah i mean 20 30 below i mean that can happen out here so
0: We spent 10 years in the Arizona desert, so you tend to shed all of your (laughs) winter clothes. And then we have grandsons up in Vermont and we went to visit. Fortunately, I still had my down ski parkas and stuff that were good to 25 below zero because we got up there and the high during our week stay was like. I think fifteen below zero. That was like yeah. high. And up on the ski slopes, like Mount Pico and a few um it was twenty two below zero. I liked it. My wife oh, yeah. my wife was not as thrilled as I was, but <laughs> yeah I understand what you're saying. There's always someplace colder, there's always someplace hotter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it's um you know, Sheridan is Sheridan's a railroad town. Uh, some of your listeners may be surprised to know that um, the CB and Q, the Burlington ran through Sheridan. And um, so, you know, it's, it's a railroad town at heart. Um, there are two historic depots in town.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they've got a, um, a Burlington uh, 05 on display in a park here. Um, the uh, the grade out of Sheridan, they call it Sheridan Hill, is one of the steepest on the uh, BNSF. It's not terribly long, so it doesn't get you know the fanfare that Crawford may. But um, there's a crew train in Sheridan. Most trains stop in Sheridan, not all of them, but, but but many of them do. And and so you're coming out of a stop, and 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 like literally, you clear that that lead and, uh, you hit the grade and, um, often, you know, less so now than, you know, maybe 20 years ago, but you know, it wasn't uncommon for them to have to double the grade, um, to get out oh, of, really? out of Sheridan Valley. oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. but it's all, it's all Burlington country, which I don't know. I mean, I don't think that a lot of people when they hear Wyoming think of the Burlington route, but, but, uh, uh, the Burlington was, um, you know, a big player in this area. It's, uh, by way of the Burlington track, the right of way through, through here that, uh, the, uh, BN and, and BNSF had access to Powder River Coal, which is the biggest coal producing, um, um, area in our nation presently. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Union Civic uh, by way of the CNW also built into the Powder River Basin, And that would, would be familiar to probably most of your listeners, but, um, you know, Wyoming, um, Wyoming is a railroad state uh, probably more than any other state that I can think of. Why, Wyoming is a railroad state, you know, um, all of the major towns. So Cheyenne, Laramie, Rawlings, Green River, um, Evanston, um, I mean, those are, are all railroad towns, Casper, Gillette, those Sheridan, those are all railroad towns. They were built because of the railroads because okay. the railroads were building west. And um, that is the sum total of all towns in Wyoming that have a population, you know, more than 10,000 people. So Wyoming owns a lot to its railroad history and heritage and you know the past um, the past isn't dead it's not even past as William Faulkner said and you know that's true today Um, the railroads remain a major employer here in the state and of course they're highly correlated with the um, the economic developments here in the state via coal or or wind power Um, so they're it's it's an important player. So for us to be in in Wyoming, we think that feels like home. You know, it definitely matches our our identity. You know, Arrowhead and and our efforts to relate to the West and and, and tie into that very rich history that railroads have in building our nation. Um, we feel like it all really came together well here.
0: Okay. Now, just personally, mm-hmm. what kind of modeling, model railroading do you do when you have
1: time, I'm sure? Well, um, right now, um, um, I, I, I'm not building an actual layout. We we started Arrowhead Models um, like a lot of people start small businesses. We sold our home and our – and I. I sold my car yeah, and uh, we, we put it all on the table. Um, so right now we're living, we're actually renting a place here in Sheridan and, and, and naturally I'm not going to build a layout, you know, in a place that I'm renting, but um, okay. before we moved and, and, and I, I hope to continue to do work on, of course, is uh, um, I, I model in uh, the Union Pacific in the 1970s specifically, Specifically, I model from 1972 to 1984. Okay. And I I model in a really remote area of Nevada um, from a town called Caliente, uh, Nevada, to uh, Modena, Utah, which is a relatively, well, very remote, uh, relatively obscure area of Union Pacific's original Los Angeles and Salt Lake route. Um, which runs from Salt Lake City into the LA Basin via Las Vegas.
0: Okay,
1: I'm, I, you know, the section we model just to help your listeners conceptualize where that's at is about 100 miles north of, of Las Vegas. Um, it's it's splendid, rough, rugged, hazardous railroad country. Um, you know, in my opinion, among the best, even on the modern Day Union Pacific, and definitely in in the area that I model um, out of Caliente, there was a branch that went to a mining community called Pioche, Nevada. Pioche um, is probably unfamiliar to most of your listeners; um, it's ha- hasn't received the fanfare that more infamous Western towns have received, but that's not to say that it hasn't earned it. Pioche was the mo- most dangerous by way of death count uh, of all Western towns. Yeah. And and by some distance too. Um, I believe, and this is from, I'm trying to remember, oh, an internet search would reveal this really quick, but um, something, something in the magnitude of like 65 people were murdered in Pioch before a single person died of natural causes wow and and this is this is in a mining community where people die of natural causes right and you you compare that and i'm not a, a historian so again please allow me some forgiveness if i if i don't get the exact numbers right but i think like towns like dodge and and uh some of these other more notorious western towns had you know in their worst years like something between 20 and maybe 25 murders right Mm -hmm. and pioch had 65 in fact they have a cemetery in pioch called boot hill cemetery which um was a a special cemetery for anybody who died with their boots on in other words anyone (laughs) who got up that morning and didn't mean to die right yes and it's an interesting Cemetery to walk through because um, the historical society there in Pioch has made an effort to identify all of the graves and give a description, you know, for how those people were died or were killed. Yeah. And, um, you know, fights over women and dogs and gold mine claims and stabbed in the back this person and, you know, shot. And I mean, it, it was a rough town. In fact, uh, one of the contributing factors for for um its unruliness was the fact that they didn't have any um any real presence of law there for periods of time Um, they tried yeah and for a multiplicity of reasons it didn't work out and then um um you know they built a they built a, a jail it's it's um it's famous to Pioch, but again, most people haven't heard of Pioch. They call it the million million dollar jail. Um, They spent a million dollars building this jail in an attempt to bring law and order and then ran out of money because the silver veins went weak and didn't have the means to staff it. So there was a period where they had a million dollar jail, but there was still lawlessness because the city was out of money and they couldn't afford to jail people. So, um, it's it's an interesting city, interesting town. I mean, it's hardly a city. It's I don't know what the population is in Pioch, but it's you know a couple of thousand. You know, maybe like fifteen hundred to two thousand. It's small. Um, You know, I'm sure I could Google it and 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 tell you right away what it is. It's a tiny little community, Um, still relies heavily on mining today, but uh, the the railroad Brent built a a branch out to Pioch. It's a 36-mile-long branch. And then um, they extended that branch a little bit further to um, a a town, put that in quotation marks, it's hardly a town, called Castleton, where they had a a reduction mill. And that mill operated um, uh, into the 80s. Well, the the mill, the reduction mill closed down in 78. But um, illegally, a couple of people started mining the tailings um, for the mill and and shipping it to be processed. But the railroad ran out to Pioch until 1984 when the line was abandoned. That's when I stopped modeling and then the rails were pulled up in 1985. Um, so, So I modeled the area between Caliente and Modena and then the branch up to Pioch. So that's what I do. Yeah.
0: All right well
1: do you have any clubs up in that area yeah so there is um there is there's a local model railroad club um there's maybe 10 guys that uh, meet twice a week they meet on wednesday night and on uh saturday mornings um and then there's a couple of railroad uh, model railroads in the area um some of those people attend the club and some of them opt not to um so there is a a bit of a, a community of railroaders here. You know, most of these guys are ex railroaders themselves, you know, having worked for the BN and and BNSF, Um, you know, there's still a crew change here in Sheridan and there's still, you know, um, a fair amount of traffic that passes through here. Uh, You know, the yard still has a turntable, Um, you know, it's all intact. They use it from time to time. Uh, the roundhouse has been torn down, but I think that came down in 96. So not, not too long ago, I suppose. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, there's interest here. Um, you know, good group of guys. Um, so, yeah.
0: Sounds interesting. Hey, is yeah. there anything else you want to uh, – because I can edit it in. Anything else you want to talk about on the Arrowhead? Or do you think you've uh, got this story out?
1: Uh, I'll, yeah, I, I can't think of anything, but I'm, of course, willing to talk about anything you want to talk about. So,
0: Like me, for instance, because of three years here in New Orleans and not being around a shop that would be one of your dealers – you know, I mm-hmm. saw an ad and I went, what the heck is that? And then started looking yeah. at it. And uh, one of the other guys goes, he's, well, it's Blaine Hadfield. I went, Blaine? I said, well, let me get a hold of that gentleman there and see if we can talk about this. Because uh, I am looking forward once we get settled in a Plano and I determine how much real estate I can sneak out, sneak away from my wife's control to put up the model railroad uh, sampling some of your wares.
1: Oh, yeah, thank you. What do you model? What are
0: your interests? I model, now this is odd. When I built the display railroad there, at, an affair with trains, and I would take in a train, not mm-hmm. a period, I would model a train. And it might be a 1970s uh, era auto carrier that had the exact rail the southern pacific you know the drop doors where they put the vegas in there and Mm -hmm. high cube boxes I might have another train that would be all grain cars pulled with dash two power so I modeled what I found fascinating Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a Santa Fe super chief with FP45's I also then had uh, several F7s and seven or eight baggage cars and a rider coach, you know, like a secondary train. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I focused on a train more than an era uh, because I did my towns, small railroad towns that looked like they might have been built in the 40s up through shortly after World War II, weathered and so forth, but still mm-hmm. appropriate for a Dash 2 or a uh, a B30-7 going through with a number of cars of whatever the appropriate vintage, even an articulated auto carrier set mm-hmm. going with fully enclosed auto carriers. So everything gets weathered, everything is DCC and sound. So That's I, I've never gotten into operations uh, mm-hmm. not anything against it just never interested me so if I'm working on electronics or you know putting in ground lights on a locomotive or so I mm-hmm. may have a train a contest just going around the uh, layout yeah you know, I may have to dial down the sound and stuff like that but it's cathartic (laughs) it's just very Mm -hmm. relaxing and that's what i enjoy doing so that's what i do so but i know going into the planar area there's a number of railroad clubs so i'm going to explore that and see but the ones that i'm familiar with in phoenix for instance weren't so much confined by an error era as just hey, let's have good equipment, reliable running, and so forth. And when you bring your change and you want to run, run them and enjoy it. You know.
1: Yeah, you know, I I share your sentiments. Um, modeling where I model um, in that that area of Nevada, there's not a lot of industry. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of room for operations, and you know, one of the... The things that I enjoy the most in, in modeling is just building a scene, building a train, and not unlike staring into a campfire, turning it on, watching it run, and just, right. just railfanning it across the layout. Yes. And and I know for a fact that when my layout is built and done, that there's going to be a lot of people um, who are deeply unsatisfied with it because the scenery to track ratio is going to be really really high you know and it's going to be really really simple kinds of a you know a layout that only requires a couple of people to operate and you know we run trains and talk and and yeah. and that's you know one of the beautiful things about our hobby is there's so much space for individuality here yeah
0: the uh before i had to you yeah, know just a the. The railroad here because we put the house on the market. The room is 13 by 14. So uh-huh. I would shoot videos and post it on either MRH or on YouTube, then I'd get comments. How big is your railroad? And I went, Well, they would reference a certain video. And I said, mm-hmm. That was shot within four feet, a four foot long section of track, heavily scenic. A lot of detail mm-hmm. on that. I said, I just used different camera angles to shoot the video. Oh, yeah. And wow. So that made this little room, even when I had I had about 50% of it scenic, it, it just gave me mm-hmm. more camera angles. And that's what I'll right. do again, is I love the the videography and the photography and creating the scene that brings me enjoyment. So I don't have to have, you know, a twenty five by seventeen fully seated.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I if you've got yeah. one, then I appreciate it and I could enjoy running there, but here in the house I don't need that to do it. I have a different way of enjoying the hobby.
1: You know, that that's a message that that we would do well to get out more. I think, you know, the notion that you have to have a bunch of space Mm -hmm. to be able to find satisfaction in this hobby is a farce, you know, Um, we, we all have dreams about, you know, what we could do if, but the reality is, is we can do a lot with what we've got. And I don't know that there's enough emphasis there, you know, and that there's enough time spent um, showcasing those um, well-execute layouts that are small that can be inspiring, that can get you know people who are otherwise armchair modelers out and doing something, you know, even yeah. when they don't have a layout.
0: The, uh, there was yeah. a gentleman in in Phoenix, and he started building his railroad in '75. He uh-huh. was roughly 25 by 20. And it's, you know, typically it was built in into a room in the house. And it was, it was a crawl under Mm -hmm. when you got to the inside. And unfortunately that's where all the controls and stuff were. You'd get on your hands and knees because uh, he had as much hidden trackage as was visible.
1: Oh, wow. But,
0: But in that 25 years, there was nothing that wasn't intricately scenic. It was all hand-laid. Code 70 track, built-in-place switches. And when Bob, the store owner, bought it, and we moved it into the store. Uh, I mean, it was old school. Plaster of Paris, so it was heavy. And he had so much track after eight months of putting this thing back together compensating for the different in our floors in the store versus his that were in his house. Different environment you know, as far as air conditioning and stuff. We still only had one main line running reliably.
1: Oh, wow. Um,
0: and it wasn't that we didn't have volunteers coming in and had regular pizza parties on uh, Friday evening. It was just when he you looked under there, and there were as big as my thighs, bundles of cable. because mm-hmm. when he started out as DC and in and, and very small blocks, and then he graduated to DCC. And, but he never took anything down. Mm-hmm. So, our just deciphering what was there, because there were no plans or schematics. And right. eventually, like I said, after a, a good year, we had one mainline running reliably under DCC. Uh, I finally just went to Bob and I went, you know, two years from now, we're going to still be doing this. And he goes, hey, what, <laughs> do you, what do you want to do? And I said, well, to get the benefit out of a, a model railroad in this store with the space we have that promotes the sale of product and, you know, the the fellowship of people coming in and interacting. I said, we need to save what's worth saving and pitch the rest. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We saved all the guys' buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, A number of his handmade trees but you know, you can't pull up hand-laid ballasted tractor, especially that had been setting in place since 1980. So, you know, but it was quite an experience. I learned a lot from that one just appreciating, you know, this this guy was along the lines of a George Celios type Mm -hmm. mobler. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why even though I go in for detail and, you know, put stacks of newspaper on the back porch of a farmhouse or something, and weather it and all that. I go okay. Let's keep this under control. I don't. I don't right. need to do what what we had at the store. That's craziness. So yeah, you don't want it to be too much of a task that it just sucks your enjoyment right out of it.
1: Yeah, and it's easy to go there, you know, because our our eyes are bigger than our stomachs. <laughs> absolutely,
0: know? absolutely.
1: Hey, there is one other thing that. Uh, cool. Excellent.
0: Looking forward to it. All right, Blaine, I'm going to let you deal with the uh, Wyoming uh, weather up there, and I'm going to go down and maybe have a cup of coffee.
1: It sounds good. A, it's only in the 50s here, but I'm chilly. <laughs> uh, well, I think right now it's about the same up here. It's been, it's been <laughs> pretty mild. But. Okay. But, hey, I really appreciate you reaching out to me and, and thinking of me. And, um, you know, it's been a long time since our last conversation. So it was really good to catch up. I appreciate
0: your time, and I've just enjoyed the dickens out of it. Okay. Well, thank you. Let's, right. uh, let's stay in touch going forward, too. Well, I think we're going to have to with, as some of these announced uh, products come up. We ought to do an update yeah. on
1: it. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. We'll stay in touch. All right. Hey, thank you, Blaine. Thank you, Paul. Take care. All right, buddy. Goodbye.